0: great. Thank you, Gordon, and thank you for everyone who's been involved uh, so far in leading us in the service. Uh, Just to let you know, in case you don't know who I am, my name's Drew. I've been coming to Windsor along with my wife, Catherine, for uh, just over 18 months. Uh, And so it's my pleasure to be leading us through the second in our new series that we're starting here at Windsor on Sunday evenings on the letters to the seven churches in Revelation. And I don't know what your initial thoughts are on this series. I don't know whether or what your initial thoughts are on the book of Revelation, but I do know that certainly for me, it's not a book that I feel very comfortable reading sometimes. It's not a book that we hear preached on very often. And I think there's a couple of reasons for that. Firstly, and forgive my irreverence. But firstly, I think sometimes we assume that Revelation is perceived as a little bit weird. It's, it's classed in the book of scriptures as a piece of apocalyptic literature, which means that it is discussions about the end times. And therefore, it is incredible pictures and images and things that seem so wonderful in literary terms. Yet, sometimes we read it and think, how does that apply to my everyday life? And so sometimes there's this temptation that we think that because the the images within Revelation are so out there, that maybe we choose to read something that's a little bit easier to automatically apply to our everyday life. Now, I'm not sure that's a proper attitude to have, but unfortunately I know that that's the attitude that I have. And so I'd be a hypocrite if I stood here and told you it was the wrong attitude to have. But there's something about the the value in reading all of Scripture as God's Word. And so it's brilliant that we have the opportunity to do that here together as we start this series. And so that's reason one why I think we sometimes avoid or maybe push to the bottom of the list, the book of Revelation. And the second is perhaps slightly more personal. I think we sometimes quietly shy away from the book of Revelation because it forces us to deal with the reality that this world is not all that there is that there is an eternity, and Revelation speaks of it explicitly, that there is an eternity that will be spent either with God or without God. And for those of us who have attempted in some way in this life to follow Jesus in this world, we will spend eternity with God, and that is presented with magnificent language and wonderful pictures, and that is what we know as heaven. The alternative, however, is if we have decided to live this world and not follow Jesus then that is presented in in words that I can only describe as horrific. And therefore, as we read it, perhaps you're like me and you you feel paralyzed, and that is because you know people whose lives are going to end in what Revelation would describe as horror. And so that gives us huge questions. That leaves us feeling a little bit bewildered as to what to do with that. And on a bigger scale, perhaps, in in a world of political correctness, it's not comfortable, it's not fashionable to talk in language of judgment. Yet that seems to be what Revelation seems to suggest. And perhaps you've heard this dealt with, and so you've heard the Christian message explained as good news without the context of the bad. And in that attempt to be relevant to the world that we live in, we don't tell the whole truth as if being relevant and being truthful are mutually exclusive. Or perhaps you've heard the balance shift the other way, where actually the good news seems to have been lost as it's been trodden on with words of judgment and scorn, which has instilled this sense of fear-fueled belief as an attempt, as an escape route out of the hell that's described in these pages. And whichever way you have heard or, or seen or experienced Revelation being dealt with, I don't think either tell the full picture, but it does show that this, is, this can seem like a daunting book as we look at the whole library of Scripture. And so those are the two issues, well, those are some of the two issues that I think keep us away from studying this book. And without wanting to minimize the impact that those two things might have, it is a wonderful opportunity that we have together in community to start studying some of this book. And so we can raise those questions together. We can deal with those issues together. We can learn those issues together. And it's our hope that as we delve into this, not only does it inspire you and fire you up to read Revelation, but it inspires you to read the whole of Scripture as God has given it. And as Gordon has alluded to already this evening, we believe that there is something that God is teaching us about his character and about our life for him on every page of Scripture. And so we hope and we pray that, that is what this series seeks to do. And all that being said, we are exploring just a couple of chapters at the very start of this book. And Gordon has already very helpfully laid out that context. This book is written by the Apostle John in prison on the island of Patmos. And we reckon that he's writing it around 95 AD or so. And he's writing then what becomes a letter to at least the seven churches that we have. And so here, to give you a little bit of an image, Patmos is the island on the very left of the picture. That's where John is writing it from. And then the blue dots, those are the seven cities where the churches are placed from Revelation 2 and 3. And the way and the order in which we see them in Revelation is very likely the order in which that letter traveled. And so last week, Stephen really helpfully led us through the letter to Ephesus. Tonight, we're dealing with Smyrna. And then throughout the seven weeks, we will deal with all of the letters. And so having begun this journey in Ephesus tonight, we're going to think about Smyrna, the city of Smyrna, and what Jesus, the risen Jesus, has to say to them. So we're going to read from Revelation chapter 2, starting at verse 8, and working our way through to verse 11. And as is our practice here at at Windsor, when we publicly read God's word and we pray his blessing upon it, it would be great if you could stand with me if you're able to. So stand as we're reading Revelation 2, starting at verse 8. And it will be on the screen for those who haven't brought a Bible with you. So to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, and he who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. Amen. Take your seats. To help guide our thoughts tonight, I just plan to work through the verses as they appear and pick out lessons as we go, and hopefully we'll finish with some application points for you to take away and live out this week. And so let's begin at the very start of verse 8. The angel to the church in Smyrna. Right, well, let's have a think about where Smyrna is and how that impacts the letter that is written. Smyrna, as you saw from the map, is about 40 miles northwest of Ephesus. Uh, because it, had a, it was right on the port, of the, it had a port onto the Aegean Sea, and therefore it was a very key commercial center in the ancient Roman world. It's reckoned that the population was around 100,000 during the first century, and significantly, quite a contingent of that population would have been Jewish. Now, under Roman authority, the Jewish religion was much better tolerated than Christianity, and that will be significant because that often brought division, it often brought conflict, and we'll think about that as we go. Now, there's no record in the New Testament of the church in Smyrna being established, but because of how close it is to Ephesus, it's pretty fair to assume that after Paul launched the church in Ephesus, somewhere mid-50s AD, then someone was then sent or, or moved to Smyrna and established a Christian community there. And so the maximum that this church could have been established for is around 40 years, if we reckon that John is writing around 95 AD. And so that's a little bit about the context in which we're jumping into. And let's think then about the words that Jesus has to say to this church. These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. And these words are incredibly significant, and as it's already been pointed out this evening, the context that this small letter takes part and takes place within a bigger letter is very, very significant. And it's important to realize that this letter was a circular, so each of the churches would have heard what was said to all the other churches. And so, John's revelation, this one revelation, this one complete work, it starts with the vision that he has of the risen Jesus. And as Gordon has led us through this evening, these magnificent images of this risen Christ. The interesting thing then is, as the letters start in chapters two and three, a characteristic from that vision that John had of Jesus in chapter one is used by Jesus to introduce himself to the individual churches. Uh, that's interesting for two reasons. And the first is the major one, that I think that it shows that the whole of the book of Revelation is not designed to be broken down into these little tiny sections and analyzed as we try to figure out what all the signs and symbols and language mean. Of course, that's an important thing, but it's not the main message of the book. The main message of the book is to send us back to chapter one. It's to send us back to the vision of Jesus and so Revelation, in all its complexity, is designed to increase our vision of Jesus and therefore increase our worship of him. And so Jesus uses a characteristic from the vision in chapter 1 to introduce himself to each of the seven churches as he starts their letter. And the second thing that's interesting about this repetition is that the characteristic that Jesus chooses to repeat has something special to say in the overall message that he's giving to those individual churches. And so we'll see as we work our way through how it's significant for the Christians in Smyrna that Jesus says, I am the first and the last. I was dead and now I am alive again. That is, that is crucial to the overall message that he wants to give them as a church. Now this repetition leads us back to chapter one and Gordon read it for it earlier, verses 17 and 18 that when I saw him, this is John talking, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and behold, I am alive forever and ever. And so the way that Jesus introduces himself to the church in Smyrna is significant. And the specifics that he uses of him being the first and the last that they were significant words for the church there. And we move through, and now we get into verse 9, where Jesus says, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. And it's fascinating that at the start of this letter, Jesus, who has just proclaimed himself as the first and the last, now says, I know. Jesus, the first and last, no one has greater authority or power than him, and he's almost otherworldly in his language, yet all of a sudden he, he comes down with incredible comfort to personalize this message to the church in Smyrna by saying, I know. And each letter is characterized by this. Jesus says, I know, in each of the letters to the seven churches. Now, interestingly, some of the, what Jesus knows is helpful, some of what he knows is comforting, but some of what he knows is then the source of a rebuke. And only Smyrna and Philadelphia, they're the only two churches that Jesus doesn't rebuke in any way. Because what he knows of them is positive. What he knows of other churches is maybe not so positive. But for the church in Smyrna who were facing mounting pressure to conform to the culture that they found themselves in, and they were being ostracized for not doing that, the words of the first and last coming to them saying, I know, I know, It would have brought such comfort. It would have felt like a hot bath on a cold winter's day. I know, says the first and last. But what are these afflictions that Jesus is talking about? What was going on in Smyrna that we need to consider? Well, Smyrna, as I mentioned, was a Roman city. And so as a bunch of Christians meeting in a Roman city, they would have been under incredible pressure. So because the Christians there chose not to worship the Roman emperor as their god that would have been problematic for them. They would have struggled to get jobs. If they did own a business or a house, that was probably looted and ransacked at some point because they just didn't fit in. And so there's mounting pressure on the the Christians in Smyrna, and they would have suffered economically. They would have suffered politically, socially. But yet Jesus says, you are rich, how can he say that when they're living in such physical and obvious poverty? Well, clearly he's talking about their spiritual richness. And, and sometimes that can sound a bit twee, can't it? Sometimes for us in the West, we, we don't really get that. That maybe the value that we have on those other things, maybe it's a little too high. And so to understand that the true wealth that we can have is in our spiritual relationship with Jesus... Maybe that doesn't have the impact for us as it did for the Christians in the first century. And so our jobs and our cars and our houses and our mortgages and our pensions, these are all wonderful gifts of God, but surely the greatest wealth we can have is the spiritual security we have by knowing Christ. It seems to be what Jesus is alluding to here, that yes, your whole life can be stripped away, but you've got me, therefore you're rich. And not only were the Christians in Smyrna facing all of this pressure, but they were also facing religious persecution, as we see from the second half of verse 9. Jesus says, I know the slander of those who say they are Jews, but are not. They are a synagogue of Satan. Now, this verse has caused a little bit of confusion because it seems to be incredibly anti-Semitic. It seems to be against the Jews. And yes, it's true that the Jews in Smyrna would have been opposed to the spread of Christianity. But it seems a bit of a jump to then assume that Jesus is saying that all Jews everywhere are synagogues of Satan. I think what we need to do is read these words a little more literally than that. And so the group that Jesus has a problem with here, they are not genuine Jews. They are a group of people posing as genuine Jews, even though they're not. As one commentator has suggested, a better interpretation is that the synagogue of Satan consisted of Gentile Christians who had Judaized—that is who had adopted Jewish ways or even converted to Judaism, perhaps in order to avoid persecution by the Romans. And so it's possible, in a nutshell, these Christians are being slated publicly by a group claiming to have some kind of religious authority of a Jewish persuasion, but who are actually just scared. And so in order to avoid persecution for themselves, they've taken on this false persona of a Jewish way of life. But wherever this persecution is coming from, wherever it comes from and whatever direction it's coming from, it's clear that it's serious for the Christians in Smyrna, even life-threatening. As we continue into verse 10, do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison and and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Now, the specifics that Jesus seems to share here about how this is going to play out for the Christians in Smyrna, it seems so foreign to us because the likelihood of us going to prison for what we believe seems unthinkable in our day and age. Or or does it? As as I've been thinking about this this week, I've been struck by the reality that it seems that the more I look around, and we've all seen stories in the news, we've all seen and heard stories through the grapevine of people who once they stand up for what they believe in, then they are standing out from the culture that they live in. Now, I'm not suggesting that we are staring down the barrel of the same kind of persecution that the Christians in Smyrna were, but I am suggesting that we suffer persecution when we stand up for what we believe in. And what that persecution looks like for you will be totally individual. Maybe it's losing face in in front of some of your colleagues, or maybe it's family members starting to treat you differently when they know that that you've started coming to church. Or maybe it's a relationship that once was so close but has now grown distant. I don't know what that looks like for you, but the reality is true for all of us that when we stand up for what we believe, we are going to stand out. And it could be that we look at that negatively, but surely that's exactly what's supposed to happen. Surely, as we take all of Scripture, the whole of Scripture and, and what it teaches, Surely it's not, the problem is not if we stand out. Surely the problem is if we don't stand out. Surely our lives are supposed to be different from the world that we live in. And so we are supposed to make a difference because we know and love and follow Jesus. And so rather than being concerned about how we can protect ourselves from standing out, maybe we need to make sure that we are standing out. Jesus called us at the start of the Sermon on the Mount to be salt and light. In a world that has no taste, go and flavor it. In a world that is filled with darkness, go and shine your light. We are supposed to stand out. But the problem still remains that when we stand out, persecution will come. Jesus is not saying that this might happen. This will happen. If we are faithfully following Jesus, we should experience difficulty. Now that seems strange, but bear with me as we continue. What's Jesus' advice if we're going to be standing out from the crowd that we live in? It's very simple, be faithful. Even to the point of death, be faithful. Basically, don't compromise. You cannot compromise. Do not let go of the vision of Jesus that you have and how he is working that out in your life. What I find worthy of note is what Jesus doesn't say. So if we're standing out from the crowd, if we're getting persecution, what does Jesus not tell us to do? Two things. Jesus doesn't tell us to retreat, and Jesus doesn't tell us to attack. Sometimes when we face this persecution, it's such a natural response to retreat, to gather around us people who agree with us, to remain safe, maybe to shy away from sharing our opinion. That's that's not what Jesus says here. Or the other extreme is we attack and we lob our well-constructed arguments like grenades at the other side, and we judge and we justify our judgment and we gather together people who agree with us and we criticize and we run down. That's not what Jesus tells us to do. He says, be faithful. Don't be scared, don't be vengeful, be faithful. Well, what is faithfulness? As Tim led us through our nine-a-day series and he was dealing with faithfulness, he shared this really helpful definition. Faithfulness is believing that God is who he says he is and continuing in that belief despite the vagaries of life. Well, that's all very well and good, but who does God say he is? We heard it this morning, if you were here with us this morning, Psalm 103, the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding faith in love. We've just shared communion together as Jesus was facing as as tough a persecution as anyone could face, hanging on the cross. What did he say? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So when we face persecution, we are not only to continue to be faithful, but we are to continue to show love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, Faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, the fruit of the Spirit doesn't stop when things get difficult. And it's not the case in the world that we live. It's not the case that either we speak truth or we show love. It can be both. It's not the case that either we are relevant to our world or we stick to our beliefs. It can be both. And what Jesus is showing us is that this often difficult path of obedience is totally worth it. Because what does he continue in verse 9 to finish with? That I will give you the crown of life. So persecution, nobody wants it. Jesus isn't saying, go and look for this. What he is saying is, as you faithfully follow me, you will suffer. And therefore, I will give you the crown of life. And this eternal perspective does start to fuel our life in the present, because no longer are our decisions dictated to by what we face in the present, but we see things with the bigger picture in mind. And that concept is built on as Jesus signs off his letter in the second half of verse 11, when he says, he who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. And for the Christians in Smyrna, this wasn't just a nice thought that John had wrote. This wasn't just nice words on a page that were read out one Sunday when they met for church. This was their daily life. About 60 years after Revelation was written, in 155 AD, the leader of the church in Smyrna was a guy called Polycarp. He's often known as the Bishop of Smyrna. In 155 AD, he was martyred. This, for the Christians in Smyrna, this was not a tweed statement. This is not some bumper sticker thing. This was daily life. They suffered persecution, and the risk of death was real. And so to hear the one who is the first and the last say, I know what you're going through, and you know what? Keep going, because I will give you the crown of life, and he who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. And just because we are not heading out of here to to that kind of response from the world around us. We're not heading out of the doors here risking death for what we believe. That shouldn't impact the, the strength of these words in our lives. We still need to get that. We still need to grasp the fact that, yeah, I'm not living for this world alone. And so my time here is going to be spent living for him. And so we don't back down. We don't attack but we live faithfully, knowing that this world is not all there is because we have a glory waiting for us. And so as we come to the end of the letter to the Christians at Smyrna and as we come to the end of our time together, what are the things that we can take with us? Well, four things that I want to share with you, and I hope that they all come across as one thing that we can carry out the door with us. But firstly, I want us to recognize the assurance that the one who we follow is the first and last There is no one or nothing greater than he. He has all of the power and all of the authority. And he has done everything we need him to do. We've celebrated communion tonight. He has done it. He has won the victory for us. But he is not impersonal. Secondly, I know. This first and last who we follow, he knows who you are. He knows what you're going through. And not only does he know, the pattern in the letters to the churches in Revelation starts with, I know, and finishes with, I will. And so not only does God know, not only does Jesus know what's going on, he is ready and willing to act. See, Jesus' knowledge leads him to action in your life. And so whatever it is that you're going through, know that he is able and willing to act when you call on him. And linked with this, we also need to recognize that we can't fool Jesus. We might be able to fool the people around us about how things are going or what we're going through, but we can't fool Jesus. He knows. The first and last knows. He knows those private victories you've had over temptation this week. He knows those private failures that you've had this week. But he's still there. And he wants you to welcome, he wants you to welcome him into that vulnerability as we lay ourselves before him and say, yeah, God, you need to help me in this because I know that you are the first and the last and you know me. And thirdly, we need to recognize then that persecution is inevitable for those who faithfully follow Jesus. And our call should be that we need to continue to be faithful. We don't compromise our message of truth. We don't water it down, but we don't attack either. We live faithfully, unashamedly, before a world that's watching on. And finally, we should hear all of what's gone before in the sure and certain hope that we have a secure hope for the future that fuels a passionate faith in the present. We have a secure hope for the future that fuels a passionate faith in the present. So let your light shine in your world. Whatever your world looks like, let your light shine. Maybe we need to get over that fear of embarrassment or shame and just do something nice for your neighbors. Maybe as the office is getting tense with gossip this week, how about we be the people who speak positively about those who are the the victims of that gossip? Maybe this week as your family is gathered around the TV watching the news, turn it off and pray for something that you've seen. Let the people that you love know that you are not living for this world alone. But we want to use the time we have here to have the greatest impact possible for the first and last who knows, who calls us to be faithful and to be faithful in the sure and certain hope that we have in our eternity with him. So as we go from here, take heart, be emboldened, with the knowledge that the one who is first and last knows he knows who you are he knows what you're going through and he calls us even when times get difficult to be faithful because he knows that he is ready to welcome us into our secure hope that we have to spend eternity with him let's pray Father, we thank you for this incredible picture of the risen Jesus that we have before us. And Lord, I pray simply yet profoundly that you would increase our picture of you. Father, would you deepen our faith in you? Would you help us, God, to recognize that you are the first and the last. There is nothing or no one greater than you, but you are not impersonal, you know us. Nor Lord, when times get difficult, Father, as we walk out this door with all sorts of things laying before us for the week ahead, Lord, would you help us to be faithful? Help us to be people who bring your love, your joy, your peace, your patience, your kindness, your goodness, your faithfulness, your gentleness, your self-control into the world that we are going into this week. And we take those risks, Father, knowing that you have our hope secured because Jesus, you have done it all.